You are listening to audio recorded at the Village Church. For more information, go to villagechurchbaltimore.com. One of the great global trends of the past few hundred years is the urbanization of civilization. The urbanization of civilization, what I mean by that is people have been increasingly moving to urban areas, to cities. In fact, here's a graph. In 1790, uh, about 5% of our country lived in urban areas. And in 2010, about 80% of our country uh, lived in urban areas. So you see this clear trajectory. And why is that? Well, for a variety of reasons, but among them, moving to the city is often seen as this is how you make it big in the world. And so when a lot of people do that, you see national urbanization. And as Alicia Keys once saying, baby, I'm from New York, concrete jungle where dreams are made of. And I think that idea, that concept embodies what a lot of people want to do when they choose to move to the city. The city is seen as exciting, it's innovative, it's diverse, it's this wealth of opportunity, this wealth of uh, this opportunities for relationships and careers and uh, discovering new passions and things like that. In a large part, a lot of this desire, a lot of this uh, uh, evaluation of what the city is, is correct. It's accurate. You know, many experts, uh, economists and so forth, they have noted that the more urban a country becomes, the more wealthy and prosperous it becomes. And so when you have mass movements of people going to cities, that is one of the signs that the country as a whole is becoming more well-off. In fact, the economist Edward Glaser, and he calls the city... Uh, humanity's greatest invention, okay, and this is a quote that he wrote in, uh, in his book, The Triumph of the City, there is a near-perfect correlation between urbanization and prosperity across nations. On average, as the share of a country's population that is urban rises by 10%, the country's per capita output increases by 30%. Per capita incomes are almost four times higher in those countries where a majority of people live in cities than in those countries where a majority of people live in rural areas. And there's a lot of numbers that he's talking about. But essentially, he's saying you see this trend across the world that when countries become more urban, they become more prosperous. Uh, but there's a, another trend going on, a caveat I want to make, which is that even though many people are flocking to urban areas over the past 100 years or so, uh, there is another movement, which is urban flight to the suburbs. It is somewhat slowing down, but it still is going strong. Uh, in the grand scheme of things, if you zoom in to the urban population in the, in the previous graph, they were talking about that, this urban population that's skyrocketing, and you divide it up into urban and suburban, you'll see that a lot of the growth, the majority of the growth over the past almost 100 years is not inner city growth, it's not city limits urban growth, but it is suburban growth. You know, about a year my mom visited us, a year ago my mom visited us, uh, she lives in San Jose, California, which is where I was raised, and San Jose is a city, but it's, for all intensive purposes, it functions more like a suburb than a city. And uh, I was, uh, I've been living in Baltimore for seven years now, but she visited. And during her time here, uh, we saw this friend of mine. And it was interesting because my friend, he was about to move to Oakland. He had spent most of his life in uh, Baltimore, but he was about to move to Oakland. And I mentioned that to my mom. And I'm like, isn't that funny? You're here from California. He's moved to Oakland. And she was like, you're moving to Oakland? Is that safe to live in Oakland? And um, my friend responds, well, I've been living in Baltimore for most of my life. So statistically, I'm probably safer in Oakland than in Baltimore. And I remember thinking, like, does my mom realize that I live in Baltimore? And does my mom realize that 
the way she thinks about Oakland is the way people in Maryland think about Baltimore. You know, you see, when I was growing up, uh, I lived less than an hour away from Oakland. And I never once, in my 18 years living in California, I never once stepped foot nowhere close to the city. It just never was a thing I would ever choose to do. Because at the time, the reputation of Oakland was that that's where the the gangs were, that's where the, the drugs were, that's where the crime were. And I didn't know anybody up there. And I wasn't relationally connected. There was no reason to go there. So I just never went. Um, and if you have ever spent any time in uh, random parts of Maryland outside of Baltimore, uh, then most likely you probably have run into some of these folks who live in Maryland who have never visited Baltimore. Or they might say something like, well, when I was a kid, I went on a field trip to the aquarium or the Maryland Science Center. Or like I went to a Ravens game one time or an Orioles game one time, but that's about it. And uh, you prob- those people are out there. I don't know if you've ever met those people. There's quite a few people out there. And if you're from Baltimore, then you know that when you get people who say stuff like that, then really they haven't visited Baltimore. What they've done is they've gone to Inner Harbor, which is kind of like fake Baltimore. It's like the wealthy touristy people. That's not, that's not raw, gritty, down-to-earth, real Baltimore. But anyways, why is that? Why is it that when I was growing up, I never went to Oakland. By the way, Oakland has changed a lot, so now it's more of a happening place to be. But why is it that when I was growing up, people never went to Oakland? And why is it that uh, today, so many people in Maryland don't go to Baltimore? It's this remnant of of urban flight. It's this remnant of what happened in the 20th century in which a substantial portion of the city chose to leave the city, to go to the suburbs, and there's this prevailing idea out there that the city, quote-unquote city, is unsanitary, it's dangerous, it's crowded. Meanwhile, the suburbs are safe, convenient, and comfortable. And many people, they operate with that paradigm. So you have this dual perception of the city. Some people romanticize the city. They view it as the great concrete jungle where the dreams are made of. And other people, they have this disdain for the city. They have this pity for the city. And I think both of those perceptions are somewhat based in truth. Because while on the one hand, the city, it does symbolize this opportunity for for prosperity and it has a proven track record for prosperity. On the other hand, it is marked by income inequality and poverty as well. And while on the one hand, it symbolizes diversity, it is also marked by gentrification. While it symbolizes community and relationship, it's marked by danger and crime. And so you have this dual perception of the city, which is partially true. What does the Bible say about cities? What does the Bible about, say about cities? And a lot, actually. And so that's what I'm going to be talking about today. Today's sermon is titled, The Redemption of the City. Usually our church, uh, oftentimes our church, we go through sermon series where we take a book of the Bible, for example, and we go through systematically, and that's awesome. Uh, We enjoy doing that. Uh, Today's sermon is considered a topical sermon. I won't be going through one passage. I'll be going through a bunch of passages. I'm taking this one topic, the city, and I'm going to just bring out to the open a bunch of different verses and passages that talk about this, okay? So that's what my hope, uh, that's what I'm going to do. My hope is that uh, I will give you a vision of what God intends cities to be. Okay, and if you're in Baltimore, then uh, to contextualize it, a vision of what God wants Baltimore to be. All right, so let's start from the beginning. In Genesis, when God created human beings, he made us in his image. We talked about that earlier uh, when, when Julius, Pastor Julius earlier, who's talking about uh, justice in the church and how the foundation for justice is that we are image bearers of God. So we were like him, we were to be like him, and we were to represent him. 
That's what it means to be image bearers. And one of the implications of that is that we are to continue his work here on earth. Um, so let's read Genesis 2.15. Genesis 2.15, it says, The Lord God took the man, newly created, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So God puts the man in the Garden of Eden and he has to work it and keep it. Now, what does it mean for him to work the garden and keep the garden? Well, this word work can also mean till or to cultivate. It, the language is very similar to essentially this guy being a gardener or a farmer. I don't know if you ever thought about this for, before. Maybe when you thought about the Garden of Eden, you just thought, you know, it was just people who like, you know, were prancing around and just eating fruits off of trees and doing nothing with their lives and just counting the clouds and, or whatever. That might, they might have done something like that. I don't know. But one thing they also did was work. They worked. They functioned like gardeners. It's clear that the human beings, they were given work to do. They were to cultivate the ground. And why? Because as image bearers of God, they're to be like God, they're to represent God. And because God works, God worked in creating, so we work in creating. God is our creator. And if we are to be like God, then it means we, in a sense, we create with him and alongside him. It is like God, when he created the world, he stopped creating. He said, I'm going to set up for myself these human beings and these human beings, they're going to continue my work of creating the world. We are to co-create on his behalf. You see, a gardener sows seeds, waters them, you know, pulls out weeds, so on. They, what, what all this is, is they are taking the raw material of the creation they do stuff with it, the raw materials, they reorganize it, they rearrange it. And then as a result, they create new things. That's what it means to cultivate the ground. You take the raw material and you do stuff with it and you create new things. Um, so hold on to that idea. We're going to get back to that. Okay, so God gave us a responsibility, responsibility to uh, cultivate the ground. But unfortunately, human beings disobeyed. They disobeyed God. They got kicked out of the garden. And then you have these two brothers the next generation, Cain and Abel. And I'm going to speed through. This is the, this is the Spark Notes version, okay? Cain kills Abel. Uh, Cain is uh, scared for his life. He thinks people are going to kill him. God says, I'm going to protect you. And then uh, check out what happens in Genesis 4, verse 17. Cain knew his wife. They had kids, okay? She conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, and by the way, this is the first mention of a city in the Bible. That's why we're reading this, Okay. He built a city. He called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. And then verse 18, verse 19, there's a bunch of names. I'm going to keep going to verse 20, okay? Ada, Cain's descendant, bore Jabal. Catch this. This is fascinating. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. So what's going on here? You see, as human beings are developing, as they are growing, they are cultivating in new ways. They're cultivating in new ways. The first way we see is that Cain builds a city. A city is unnatural. When you go out in nature, in places that are undisturbed by human beings, you don't see cities. Cities, what are cities? Cities are, you take raw materials from the ground and you do stuff with it, you rearrange stuff and you construct a city. And then, did you catch what happened with these three instances of people? They're taking raw material from creation. They're creating new things. God's original creation didn't have uh, livestock in tents. It had animals, but they weren't agricultural or farm-like animals. They were just 
wild animals. It didn't have musical instruments like lyres and pipes. It didn't have metals to be forged, things like that. Um, what was happening is that humans are using these gifts that God has given them to co-create things from the raw material that God has given us. And the phrase you can use to, the term you can use to describe this is technology. So God has given us this, uh, these raw materials and he's given us this mind to do stuff with this raw materials to create technology. And I think this concept, if you were an ancient reader reading this in the Bible, you might have been confused or a little bit uh, um, surprised because most ancient religions didn't teach this. Most ancient religions taught that the gods granted humanity these individual gifts. It was God who gave a God who gave human beings music. It was a God who gave human beings agriculture. It was a God who gave human beings these uh, metals and things like that. But here, it seems like these people were developing these things on their own. That's what it seems like. Uh, so that's surprising. That's interesting. But I think that's intentional as part of the biblical narrative because God designed human beings to be image bearers. And he wanted us to co-create with him. And we continue to do this today. You know, what is a painting or what is a bridge or what is a computer? These are things that we have created as human beings. We have taken raw materials from the earth and we have created these things. They are extensions of God's original creation. We as a human race, we are continually co-creating as we develop. We are continually fulfilling God's call for us to cultivate the ground in, uh, by uh, creating this God-honoring technology. Um, now at this point, you might be, wondering, but is technology a good thing? Are these inventions a good thing? Are cities a good thing? Are these creations good? Because some folks, they might be reading this narrative and they, they might think, uh, God created a garden. He didn't create a city. And it seemed like Cain was a bad dude. He killed a guy and he created the city and his descendants created these things. And so it doesn't seem like these are positive things, right? So are these positive things or are these negative things? Well, that's what we're going to be talking about, okay? Cities, and this is my position, okay? Cities are not inherently bad. Spoiler alert, uh, uh, heaven is a city, okay? So cities are not inherently bad, uh, but some cities are bad. You know, that's why when you think of cities, stereotypically, you think of crime, you think of trash and all this stuff. Cities were never meant to be bad, but some cities are bad. And why is that? Well, let's talk about it, okay? Fast forward to Genesis 10, 8 through 10. Cush fathered, this is more genealogy, but this is interesting genealogy, okay? Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Uh, by the way, when we were having kids, I, I was half-jokingly considering the name Nimrod, but we didn't go with that name. Anyways, therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning, catch this, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Eric, Akkad, Calnet, and the land of Shinar. So if you're unfamiliar with these names, you might go, oh, wow, Nimrod, he's a pretty impressive guy. He's a mighty dude. He's, he's like a civil engineer building all these cities. But to the ancient Israelites, this was not a pleasant dude because all of these cities were their enemies, okay? Babel in particular, in Hebrew, is actually the same word as Babylon. Babylon is probably enemy number one in the Old Testament. And, uh, Eric and Achad, they were also capitals of the Sumerians and the Akkadians. So they were enemies, okay? And they were responsible for a lot of violence and oppression in Mesopotamia at the time. And so you have this dude, Nimrod, and it's clear that the context is saying he's building these bad cities. So that's Genesis 10. 
And then what happens is Genesis 11 is sort of like a flashback. It rewinds because it describes how Babel in particular was constructed. Okay, this focuses on the city of Babel. Let's read about it. Genesis 11, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. Here's another instance of technological innovation, making bricks. They had bricks for uh, stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. Okay, so let's pause there. Why are they building the city? They're building the city because they want to make a name for themselves. And I want to suggest that is when cities go bad. That is when cities go bad, is when people make cities not for God, but for themselves. When they are building the city for themselves, what they're doing is they're functioning not as image bearers of God anymore, not representing God anymore, but as image bearers of humankind, of themselves. They're taking God's mandate to cultivate the ground, uh, to use, to create technology, not to co-create with God or for God, but to co-create isolated from God and for themselves. Okay, that's where cities go wrong. Let's go down to verse eight. So what happened? What's the consequence? The Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So this is Babel. That's the story of Babel. And throughout the Old Testament, it came to uh, be the city that symbolized evil. It symbolized rebellion. And from that point on, Throughout the Old Testament, almost all mentions of cities were negative. There are a few instances of positive cities. We'll go through them. But most mentions of cities in the Old Testament were negative. They're described in negative ways. You see, them with, you see this with Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, you see this with the great cities of Egypt during Israelite slavery. You see this in the cities of Canaan during the Canaanite conquest. You see this with the cities of Babylon and Nineveh. You see throughout the prophets, they're doing woe to this city, woe to this city, woe to this city. Cities have become this symbol of evil. Now I want to ask again, is there something inherently wrong with cities? Now, some people, they might think that. They might think the rural life is the ideal life. God created a garden. I want to go be a gardener. I want to live on my, on my own farm, be self-sustainable, and I don't want to live in the city, right? But I want to suggest, no, cities are not inherently bad. What is a city? After all, city, a city is basically a bunch of people living in close proximity with one another. A bunch of people densely populated, living in close proximity with one another. That's all it is. But what happens when a lot of people live close to one another is that the characteristics of the, of the people are enhanced. What happens is that a city enhances the characteristics of the people of the city. And so therefore, when you have a lot of good people, you have a good city. When you have a lot of bad people, you have a bad city. When you have a bunch of people and they all have individual sin and they come together and they live in, in a city, then now you have systemic sin. You see, if you have a sinner who tries to oppress people by himself, I mean, that's bad, but he can only do so much. He's just like this weird bully, okay? But if you have a bunch of sinners coming together and they collude and they put their minds together, they have ideas about how to oppress people, they have the social contract in a city, then it becomes really bad. 
Then you have systemic oppression. Then you have things like war and slavery and genocide. War and slavery and genocide, they can't happen at the individual level. You can't have one Joe Schmo decide, you know, I'm going to be bad. I'm going to I want to have war and slavery and genocide. What happens is you have a bunch of people, like-minded evil people coming together for this common cause, putting their minds together. And then what you have is the sum is greater than its parts. You have a, a, a force of evil that was greater than if any, any single person was individual by themselves. But God had a plan because even though cities can be forces of systemic sin, they can also be forces of systemic good if the people are good. And so God's plan started with the nation of Israel. And what was the nation of Israel? It was sort of like this grand experiment to raise up for himself a good people, a good nation, a good kingdom. And that was called Israel, right? So he rescued them from slavery, started from scratch, gave them a bunch of laws, said, this is how you be good. This is how you walk with justice and and humility and love and things like that. Israel was to show the world what a a civilization that followed God looked like. uh, And Israel was to be this force of systemic good. And uh, there are a lot of awesome things about Israel. But one thing I want to point out is that Israel was supposed to uh, set aside six cities of refuge. Six cities of refuge. I want to read this in This happens in a number of places, but Numbers 35, I'm going to read this, starting from verse 14. Uh, This is what God commanded. You shall give three cities beyond the Jordan and three cities in the land of Canaan to be cities of refuge. Three plus three is six, right? These six cities shall be refuge for the people of Israel and for the stranger and the sojourner among them, that anyone who kills any person without without intent may flee there. So what would happen at this time is that sometimes people would die, sometimes on purpose, sometimes on accident. People would kill them on purpose or accident. And then people would realize, oh, this guy died. We need an exact revenge. And so they would uh, look around, try to figure out who killed this guy. And sometimes they would incorrectly assume that certain people were responsible, or sometimes they would assume certain malicious intent, and they would uh, exact revenge by themselves and kill them. Um, in some ways, it's, actually, it's kind of similar to what happened in the, in the uh, Jim Crow era with lynching mobs. That's what happened, right? So God, what his plan was, to, was to establish these cities of refuge. And the idea was, if you killed somebody, you can go to these cities of refuge, and that would be like a safe haven for you, and people won't kill you willy-nilly. And it doesn't mean you get away scot-free. What happens is if you go to these cities of refuge, you are guaranteed a fair trial. That's the idea. When you go to these cities of refuge, you guarantee that these elders will hear your case and they will understand you and they will make sure you get a fair trial. So these six cities were meant to be distinct, different from all the other evil cities in the world. They were to be not places of violence or oppression. They were to be places of refuge, of safety, and of justice. And later, the Israelites established the city of Jerusalem. And the city of Jerusalem, more than anything else, was to be the city that was distinct from the rest of the world. It was to be like a city on a hill. It literally was on a hill. And it was to be this place of peace. That's what Salem means, is peace. And this is what Psalm 48 says. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. That's Jerusalem. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion, that's another term people use for Jerusalem. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. And so there was such lavish language used in the Psalms to praise this great city of Jerusalem because it was to be a holy city, distinct from all other cities. That was the dream city. 
Jerusalem was to be like a cultivated Eden. A cultivated Eden, meaning it was a place where God dwells with his people. That's why there was this temple built there with a lot of Edenic imagery. It was this place of holiness, this place of beauty, this place of joy. It was this place, but unlike Eden, Eden, it was not a garden, but a city. Because it was what Eden was intended to be eventually if the first human beings stuck to their plan of cultivating the ground as image bearers of God. It was to be this place that was cultivated and developed with technology. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, you often see uh, passages that talk about the great raw resources that the people used to build and construct this great city and the great temple. But unfortunately, Jerusalem never lived up to its calling either. Jerusalem followed in the footsteps of every other city in the world. As Micah prophesied in Micah 3, verse 9 through 12, hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. So what's going on here is Jerusalem is described to be no different from any other city. It is just like Babylon, just like Sodom. It is filled with iniquity and bribery and divination. And it has, but the unfortunate thing, the contrast is you have some people there, these holy moly people there who think that they have nothing to worry about because they are divinely assured to be safe. And the prophet Micah is saying, no, you're going to be destroyed too. And it's a twist of irony that Jerusalem was overthrown by Babylon itself. That it was Babylon, the great wicked city, that destroyed Jerusalem. And then its residents were exiled. Now here at this point, if you don't know the rest of the story, you might have this predicament, which is how were the people of God possibly going to build these holy cities now when they don't even have their own nation, they don't have their own laws, they are scattered about, exiled in enemy territory in these wicked, evil cities. Well, God had a plan up his sleeve. Let's read Jeremiah 29 to see what it was. Jeremiah 29, verse 4 to 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. He's talking to Jewish exiles who are in Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Now this is a shift from what was going on in the Old Testament. Hear what God is saying. Hear what God is saying to these exiles. He's saying, build this city. Be gardeners in the city. Marry people in the city. Be relationally connected and tied to the city. Seek the welfare of the city. Pray for the city. In other words, I think you can think of it this way, cultivate the city. And here's why this is so drastic of a change from what happened before. Because uh, in the beginning, in the beginning, the plan was never to 
go into enemy cities. It was always to set up alternative holy cities. But here, it's like there's no choice. You're, you couldn't set up these holy cities by yourself, okay? So instead of doing that, what you're going to do is you're going to go into these wicked cities exactly where you're not supposed to be in the first place. But while you're there, you're going to invest in them. You're going to work for their good. You're going to redeem them. And this is a foundational principle in this, which is the people of God are not called to build alternative holy cities from scratch. Now, the way it's supposed to work, we are to turn wicked cities into holy cities. That is our mission now. In the early Old Testament, our mission was to build these alternative holy cities to be different, to be separated, to be isolated from all these other wicked cities. But starting from the exile, there was a dramatic shift, which is why I think in the New Testament, we continue to use this language of exile. The, new, the shift is that now, instead of building these distinct, holy, isolated cities, now we live in and we immerse ourselves in these wicked cities with the intent of redeeming them into good cities, of, into holy cities. As Jesus said, we are to be in the world, but not of the world. And when Jesus came, speaking of Jesus, he did a number of things. Firstly, he established the kingdom of God. And he made it clear this kingdom was not this separate entity. It's not like this other political nation that once you become a Christian, you leave the Roman Empire, you join the kingdom of God. It wasn't this alternative city. It was a spiritual city that existed inside of other political cities. It was this kingdom of God, like yeast and dough, that's supposed to spread and transform these cities. So he established the kingdom of God. And secondly, he established himself as the king of the kingdom. Because what was wrong with all these other cities throughout history? The issue was that people were wicked. People were wrong. People were broken. And as a result, you have cities that were messed up. The reason why we can never build good cities is because we never had any good people. And so when Jesus came, he was the good king. He came and he has the ability to set forth to build a good city. And thirdly, he established for himself a citizenry. A citizenry. And these are dual citizens, mind you. You don't leave your old kingdoms to join your new kingdom. You are simultaneously part of your old kingdom and your new kingdom. But the idea is if you repent of your sins, and you trust in Jesus, you will be born again and you will be called citizens of the kingdom of God. And then you'll be commissioned to live out the values of, those kingdom, of that kingdom here on earth in this worldly kingdom. And that's what the church should be doing today, to be living out the values of the kingdom of God here in our earthly kingdom. You know, and my fear is that uh, many people, many Christians aren't doing that. Many Christians have chosen the path of suburbanization. And there's nothing wrong with living in the suburbs. Many people I know live in the suburbs. I grew up in the suburbs. But what I mean by that is I'm not talking about where you live. I'm talking about your philosophy of leaving places of danger, of leaving places of brokenness, of leaving places of dirtiness, of filth, just so that you can stay safe and comfortable. That's what I mean. You know, one thing that is fascinating about the early apostles in the book of Acts, when you, read their, when you read the book of Acts, is they did almost all of their ministry in major cities. Paul would preach in Athens, considered the intellectual center of the Roman Empire. He would preach in Corinth, considered one of the main commercial, commercial centers of the Roman Empire. He would preach in Ephesus, one of the uh, polytheist religious centers of the Roman Empire. He would preach eventually in Rome, obviously the political center of the Roman Empire. In fact, some scholars have written, quote, it is easy to see that the mission strategy of the early church was to evangelize the city. 
It is no exaggeration to say that in Acts, the church is almost exclusively associated with the city. And why did the apostles target the cities? Well, there's probably a lot of reasons for that. One, there are more people in the cities. And so if you want to reach more people, you go to the cities. But I think uh, historically, this is also just good strategy because historically cities have an overrepresentation of key demographics. Key demographics that I think if you reach a lot of these people, then you change the world. Okay, number one, key, dem key demographics, true in the past, true today. Young people. Cities have a disproportionately large number of young people. Um, they come into the city for school, for work, things like that. And so if you want to impact what your society will be like 20 years from now, you got to go to the city. That's where the young people are. Number two, immigrants. Cities have a disproportionately large number of immigrants. That's where a lot of the social services are. That's where uh, there are enclaves, ethnic enclaves in cities. And so if you want to reach the nations, if you want to reach people from cultures with little or no access to the gospel, then you got to go to the cities. Number three, the poor. Cities have a disproportionately large number of poor people because out in the county or in rural areas, you know, you don't have buses, you don't have convenient places to get food stamps and things like that. And so a lot of poor, a lot of homeless people, if you want to, you want to ask for money, they go to the cities. And so if we want to be obedient to God's call to us to care for the poor, to serve the poor, we got to go to the, to the cities. And number four, the cultural elites. The cultural elites, and what I mean by that is uh, cities have a disproportionately large number of people who have great influence over our culture whether it's through academia, whether it's through the media, business, uh, health. We have a lot of people who, just the way society is organized, it's unfortunate that there's inequality, but the way it's organized is people in cities, they determine what people eat. It is they that determine what... Uh, how people use their schedule is they that determine what movies come out, is they determine what people learn in the schools. And so it is the cultural elites in the cities that determine the direction for our country. You know, Stephen Um and Justin Buzzer, they write in this book, Why Cities Matter, uh, they write, cities shape the world. What happens in cities doesn't stay in cities. What happens in cities spreads. As the city goes, so goes the broader culture. What happens, you see this throughout history, religious history, national hi political history, you see this. When cities are taken, uprooted by certain ideas, that spread, that's, that those ideas, they spread out to the suburbs and to the countryside. You know, some Christians, they feel like we are losing the so-called culture war. Maybe you've heard that sort of phrase before. Oh man, there's, there, people don't even say Merry Christmas anymore and all that stuff. Well, I don't, I don't know if I, those terms I think can have some unhealthy connotations, but I think the idea, what people are trying to say is that why does it seem like when you look at Gallup polls or Pew Research polls, it seems like the majority of the nation identifies as Christian the majority of the nation identifies as Christian, but it seems like there's so much cultural opposition to Christianity. Why is that? I would say one of the reasons is because Christians are overrepresented in rural areas and underrepresented in urban areas. Christians are overrepresented in rural areas and underrepresented in cities, and what happens in cities controls the culture. And so if Christians want to make any difference in our broader culture, we need a movement of Christians who want to be engaged in urban areas. We need a movement of Christians who are willing to say, I'm not just going to huddle up with other Christians and listen to my Christian radio and read my Christian books and my, go to my Christian bookstores and never interact with non-Christians for the rest of my life. And we need pe people to move into areas where there, are, there is potentially opposition. 
areas where stereotypically you might think of it as dirty or as filthy or as crowded or as ugly or not beautiful, whatever it is, we need people to be like the people who are exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon, people who are seeking the welfare of the city, praying for the city, cultivating the city. We need a movement of those kind of Christians. Some of you are living in Baltimore because this is where you were raised and it's all you know. Um, but maybe you don't care much for the city. In fact, maybe you sometimes dream of moving out of the city. Maybe others of you, you're here in Baltimore temporarily for a short program, whether for school or for work, and you're just sort of waiting for this thing to get over with so you can move on with your life and go to bigger and brighter things. Maybe others of you, you do intend to stay for the long haul, but you sort of spend most of your time in parts of the city that make you feel like it makes you feel like you're in the city because you're living in the city, but you're really, you're doing suburban-ish kind of things. In other words, you're staying safe and comfortable, you're not doing very much besides that. Wherever you are, whoever you are, I want to invite you for as long as God has you in Baltimore, whether it's for a month or whether it's for your whole life, I want to invite you to employ the gifts and resources that God has given you to join in this godly effort to redeem the city of Baltimore. It's not up to us. People have been doing it for generations, for hundreds of years before we even came on the scene. But there is this movement going on of Christians who are trying to be obedient to this call of redeeming cities of investing in neighbors, investing in coworkers, being excellent in your studies or in your job, advocating for the poor, praying for the city, seeking the welfare for the city. There's this huge movement of people who are doing that, but it's not big enough because there are too many Christians who have decided to sit on the sidelines, to sit in the suburbs, metaphorical suburbs. God is in the business of redeeming the city and I invite you to join in on this effort. And I know sometimes the work can be frustrating, it can be disappointing. It may seem like you're on your own. It may seem futile, futile at times. But I want to give you a glimpse of where we're headed and let this be your hope. In the last two chapters of the Bible, John sees a vision of the future. And this is what he writes in Revelation 21, starting from verse 2. And I saw the holy city. Again, notice it's not a garden. It's a city. It's 100% cultivated, right? New Jerusalem. This is different from the old Jerusalem that was filled with bribery and iniquity. In the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. Skip down to chapter 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Here's the city once again. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now I want to point out a few things. The first thing is notice there's this tree of life here. Now, if you know your Bible, you might think tree of life. Oh, that's the Garden of Eden. And you'd be right. In the Garden of Eden, that's, in the Garden of Eden, there was a tree of life. And when people were cast out of the garden, the tree of life was never mentioned again. There's a few metaphors here and there, but in the literal sense, it's never mentioned again until Revelation. And in Revelation, in this new city, the tree of life reappears and what does that mean? I think it means that this new city is supposed to be what Eden was meant to be. It is the same scene of Eden, but complete. It is complete now. And notice another thing. We're not operating completely from, from scratch. You might think, oh, this is brand new. 
So you, uh, nothing in, we do in this world will matter because everything will be burned up and we're going to be in the New Jerusalem anyways. But notice, what, are this, what is this tree of life doing? Its leaves are healing the nations. It's healing the nations. Why is there a need for healing the nations unless it's the same process that we're working on right now? In other words, right now we are in this process, this God-ordained process to heal the nations Okay, it, these nations will not completely burn up because in the new heaven, in this new city, these nations are still around. They need healing. What does it mean they need healing? They are broken. They have experienced sin. Systemic sin is still there and they need healing. And so our work right now of redeeming the city continues on in the new city. In other words, this is the, the fulfillment, the consummation of what, is, what we're doing right now. This vision of Revelation is what the Garden of Eden was always meant to be. This was always God's plan A. When God created humanity, the garden was supposed to be cultivated and developed. Technologies were supposed to be invented. Cities were supposed to be established, but for good and not for evil. Unfortunately, there were a bunch of bumps along the way. Got a lot of bumps on the road, but Jesus came. He set us right on track. He set us back on uh, what we're supposed to be doing. And he has now commissioned us to continue his work here on earth. So church, I want to invite you. Let's keep co-creating. Let's keep cultivating. Let's keep redeeming. Let's keep doing God's work here on earth in redeeming the city. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that the job of redemption isn't dependent on us. If it was dependent on us, we would be no different from anybody else. We'd be just like these ancient Israelites who tried to build Jerusalem, but it fell. It was just a heap of ruins at the end of the day because it was no different than anybody else. And we know that on our own, with our own power and our own strength, our own abilities, we would have no way of making a smudge of a difference in this world. But we thank you so much for Jesus, that Jesus came and he flipped this world upside down because he started this thing called the kingdom of God in the midst of our cities. And he has invited us to be born again, to join him in this new endeavor, this radical endeavor of growing, of cultivating the ground the way you intended us to, of rebuilding these cities so that there would be a name not for ourselves, but a name for you. God, we pray for Baltimore. There are so many problems, it seems like, when we look left or right, Whenever we turn on the news, whenever we look at social media, it seems like nothing works here. But God, may you inspire us. May you motivate us. May you surround us with like-minded people, people who are passionate for your name and your name alone. May you save our city. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.